Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the inaugural Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture, Arrington himself was the speaker. His topic was faith and intellect as partners in Mormon history. Joining us today is the 2013 lecturer. That lecture is going to be happening uh, this evening in uh, at 7 o'clock, I believe it is, in the uh, Tabernacle in downtown Logan. Dr. Gregory Prince is adapting uh, Arrington's title. He's calling his lecture Faith and Doubt as Partners in Mormon History. A scientist by profession, Prince is also a published uh, historian of Mormonism. Its books include David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. He's also interviewed with uh, several leading figures of Mormon studies for PBS documentary The Mormons. Drawing on material from his latest project, a biography of Mormon historian Leonard Darrington, Prince's lecture focuses on paradigm shifts in Mormon culture and how people's faith, coupled with doubt, challenge conventional wisdom. Prince says that faith and doubt are two sides of the same coin. The interplay between the two is essential to the complete religious life. That lecture is the 19th annual Mormon History Lecture. It is this evening in the Logan LDS Tabernacle. It begins at 7 o'clock, free and open to the public, and is hosted by Utah State University Special Collections and Archives. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. Before we get into uh, this very interesting topic, uh, this comment from yesterday responding to Ivan Doig. Hope you uh, got, were able to catch that. Uh, this is from Dan in Dinosaur, Colorado. My grandmother lived in Butte as a young girl just after the time you've written about in your new book. I'm looking forward to reading it. It says about Ivan Doig's new book, uh, Sweet Thunder. What is your usual pattern for writing? Do you set aside time each day to write, or do you write when inspiration hits you or both? And uh, we answered a bit of that second question, which is good because, uh, of course, this comment came in after the uh, program. So um, we'll pass that on to Mr. Doig. And by the way, a correction from yesterday, Mr. Doig's uh, parents in Salt Lake City this evening at 7 o'clock is at the King's English Bookshop. It's at the actual bookshop. He appears by Skype from his home in Seattle. Now to this idea of faith and doubt in uh, Mormon history. Uh, it's interesting that you would loop back to the original lecture. Uh, Leonard Arrington, the, the dean of uh, Mormon historians, um, and uh, wrote uh, the seminal book, Great Basin Kingdom, and some others. He was Mormon church historian for a while. Um, interesting that he would choose that title, and you've looped back uh, 19 years later. Yeah, the more I got into his life, and I've been researching it now for eight years in preparation for writing the biography, the more it became apparent that what he had done far earlier than the rest of the historians was to dig deeply enough into the archives that he saw the data points and was able to use those data points to reexamine the traditional story. And that means that you're challenging or doubting what that original story is. That's really the reason that his seminal work, Great Basin Kingdom, still stands today uh, after a half century as a high-water mark in Mormon historiography because he used an economic approach, looking at the economic data points, to rewrite the history of the Mormons in the West and in doing so created a brand-new paradigm. Hmm. How was Great Basin Kingdom received, especially among the hierarchy of the the authorities of the church. How was it? How was it, yeah. Uh, he was asked this occasionally, how did you get away with writing a book like this that overturned so many of the traditional paradigms? And his answer was, I don't think very many of them read it. Hmm. It was a scholarly book. It was published by Harvard University Press. And so it wasn't standard reading fare out here. That said, even though it didn't have a very large press run, its impact on Mormon historiography 
and even on the historiography of the West, has been sustained and substantial ever since. Uh, about a year ago, I think in Harper's Magazine, Richard Bushman listed the books that he felt were the most important books on Mormon history to date. I believe there were eight titles there. Number one was Great Basin Kingdom. Mm. Interesting. What do you think Arrington was responding to in the, you know, 19 years ago with that inaugural lecture? I think we probably were going down similar mental pathways, that he was trying to raise consciousness as to the importance of intellect in religion, that you don't, don't just receive the story and then life goes on, that you must grapple with it. You must, well, in the words of Helen Whitney, who did the PBS documentary, she said, you Mormons have a good religion, but I find that so many of you don't own it. You borrow it. Mm. And Leonard was trying to own it and trying to get others to own it. Mm. And you own it by wrestling with it. Uh, and if you're wrestling with it, it means you're going to be doubting some things because unless you doubt, you don't prove. What, was, what, what do you think Arrington was wrestled with in his, in his life? Well, uh, I'll be talking tonight about four things, two of which he did battle with and one, and two of which, even though others did the doubting, he took a pass and watched from the sidelines. Uh, the first one was Great Basin Kingdom itself, where his, his grappling with the data points led him to a far different interpretation of Mormon history. And then the second was a subset of that, that he looked specifically at the LDS Word of Wisdom and tracked it through history and showed that the reason that it became a normative uh, standard for the church rather than just good advice was really tied into economics, that Brigham Young needed a way to finance the perpetual emigrating fund. And he figured that a good way to do that, to scrounge up the hard, scarce cash, was to keep the people from sending that cash to the East to buy luxury items, many of which were included in the Word of Wisdom. Mm. So those were two examples where he actually turned us around substantially on our understanding of our own past by looking at it through the eyes of an economist. And I imagine even more interesting would be the uh, would be those 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 doubts, those struggles where he felt he wasn't successful in that. Or he took a pass. Or took a a pass, yes. And probably the most significant one where he did take a pass was on blacks and priesthood. Hmm. He he clearly knew about the policy. Everybody knew about the policy. And he was church historian six years before the revelation that changed the policy. But he never questioned it either in a public setting or in his own diary. Uh, He does give an extensive diary entry in 1973 of a visit from Lester Bush, who has been one of my closest friends for almost 40 years. We have lived in the same area in Maryland since we moved back there. Lester is a physician, not a historian by trade, so there's my role model for doing what I do. And he was bothered by the policy, so he really did for that policy what Leonard had done in Great Basin Kingdom. He dug into the archives deeper than anybody had dug before and challenged the paradigm. Hmm. Uh, Leonard, in his diary, commented on Lester's audacity in challenging it, but he didn't take up the challenge himself. Hmm. And how did did he have regrets about that, Arrington? No, he rejoiced when the policy was overturned. Hmm. Uh, But I think it's interesting that in writing one of the histories himself, Uh, in his autobiography where he spends the greater part of a chapter talking about the revelation, he didn't even mention Lester. 
Hmm. And, and I wonder if it's because he may have felt a little bit uh, inadequate having passed up the opportunity to really grab onto what Lester was doing hmm. at the time. Of course, he was in a, I don't know, very interesting position. You might call it interesting and understatement. He was the official Mormon church historian at the right. time. Right. And by the time you get into that chair, you had to be very discreet about what things you're challenging. Yeah. I wonder, you, you personally, you, you, this, this question of blacks in the priesthood, you were a missionary in Brazil. Yes. I went down in 1967. I was in the deep south of Brazil. And so think geographically of flipping the United States upside down in the southern hemisphere. The black population in Brazil is more prominent in the north of mm-hmm. the country. And where I was, I was heavily German and Italian. But nonetheless, we had a, a lot of black people down there, an enormous amount of intermarriage in Brazil. That has been a hallmark, really, of Brazilian culture for centuries. Uh, and there was no practical way of determining who had African blood and who didn't. Uh, the church down there was quite small at the time. When I went down, there were only two missions in the entire country. Now, this is a country that's larger than the continental United States. And there were only about 20,000 members with the two missions combined. So we were struggling just to stay alive down there. And the issue was a back burner issue for us. It wasn't until several years after I came home, 1969, that the announcement was made that there would be a temple in Sao Paulo. And that really put us on a collision course with this policy because, pragmatically speaking, you could not figure out how to run that temple if you still had this policy. Hmm. Interestingly, then, then you, you uh, was reading a transcript of your interview with Helen Whitney for, for the film The Mormons. You said then you went to grad school and you you were a scientist and that was your focus. And as you look back, you wish you had been more involved in in that issue particularly. Yeah, there there have been three major social issues in my lifetime, uh, particularly in American society. The first was civil rights. um, And I was too young and too naive and took a pass on that. The second was women's rights. and I was too involved in getting an education. And that third has been gay rights, and I've been much more involved in that. But uh, yeah, even though the, the policy on blacks and ordination was, was a matter of contention in the late 60s and the early 70s, I was so immersed in my studies that I took a pass on it, mm. perhaps in the same way that Leonard did. Yeah. Later on, however, you became friends with Lester Bush. In fact, the when when the policy change was uh, announced, you spent the evening, the night with Lester Bush. Went over to their house. He was getting telephone calls, as you might expect, from all over the country, congratulating him. It was an amazing evening. Uh, Lester is an amazing human being, one of the brightest people I've ever known, and certainly did the church a huge, huge service by his pioneering research and writing in that area. Hmm. That might lead us into talking about, you You said, I, can't, I think this was in your your comments for the, for the film, The Mormons, um, that um, the, in the LDS church members are comfortable, at least with the idea of continuing revelation, but not comfortable with the idea of change. Yes. And you say the two are 
are linked. I don't see how that you can differentiate them, and yet there's this huge paradox Mm -hmm. that if you were to go into virtually any Mormon congregation and say, all in favor of continuing revelation, you can almost guarantee that every hand is going to shoot up. If you then ask, how many of you are comfortable with substantive change? I think you'd get people looking nervously from side to side and very few hands going up. Well, if you really believe in the one, you've got to be able to accept the other. Uh, And when we have been called upon to do that from the top, as we did in 1978, it turned out that people were able to make a huge change virtually overnight. Uh, But on a day-to-day basis, we're much less comfortable with the idea of change. And why do you think that is? Uh, I think it's largely because the demographic of the church and the demographic of Utah in general politically is very conservative. And the conservative mindset is t- tends to hang on to what it cherishes uh, as opposed to embracing new ideas. Mm. Uh, that's really the dividing line between conservative and progressive. Mm. And I think it spills over into the religion. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Gregory Prince. Uh, he holds a, a PhD. I'm not sure what what in pathology. Okay. Pathology, and your your research was on uh, RSV. Right? Yes, forty years worth of research yes. on RSV. Yeah, um, and I read somewhere a, a degree in dentistry. Yep, as well. Practiced dentistry for twenty years. So you've you've been involved in and, and so this interest in Mormon history uh, is, is an avocation. It is an avocation. And it really came about um, mostly triggered by my relationship with Lester Bush, who was that role model. At the same time that I moved back there, Dialogue moved back there, and I became involved in the editorial office. But there was an earlier association that came back to reinforce me in a way that I hadn't anticipated. When I was a student at Dixie College from 65 to 67, my home teacher was Will Brooks. Will was in his 90s, just a a delightful, dignified old man. Uh, His wife was Juanita Brooks. They were next-door neighbors. I didn't appreciate then what Juanita Brooks really stood for, but I had enough contact with her and with Will uh, that years later, when I started to get into Mormon history, that became a second role model for me. Interesting, because uh, Juanita Brooks, you know, when you talk about intellect and faith— uh, she stands for you know, a certain position on, on that. She she had, I don't know what you call it, troubles with yes. hierarchy for for her research. She challenged a longstanding paradigm, and that paradigm was the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, she challenged it with integrity, with honesty, with loyalty to the church, uh, which wasn't always returned in kind. Mm-hmm. But Juanita never let go, and I've known several of her kids over the years, uh, all rock-solid people. For her to have experienced what she did and not let that affect her family was a stellar accomplishment. Gregory Prince is giving the 19th annual Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. Arrington himself was the first speaker. His topic then was faith and intellect as partners in Mormon history. Dr. Prince is adapting that title to faith and doubt as partners in Mormon history. And he says that faith and doubt are two sides of the same coin. The interplay between the two is essential to a complete religious life. We're going to talk a bit about that after a brief break. By the way, the lecture is this evening, 7 o'clock in the Logan LDS Tabernacle on Main Street in Logan.
More following the break. This is folk singer Michael Jonathan inviting you to tune into the next broadcast of Wood Songs as we celebrate the guitar with three masters, Jack Pearson, Vicky Genfan, and Muriel Anderson. It's music and conversation on the next broadcast of the Wood Songs, Old Time Radio Hour. Friday nights at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, Every year about this time, there's a Mormon history lecture. It's called the Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture, named after uh, Arrington, who was at the time LDS Church uh, official historian. And uh, he wrote some seminal works, including Great Basin Kingdom. Uh, He... uh, he felt it important uh, to, to uh, investigate faith and intellect as partners in Mormon history. That was the title of the inaugural lecture. Uh, the current lecture is happening this evening, 7 o'clock in the Logan LDS Tabernacle on Main Street in Logan. And the lecturer this year is a Mormon historian and uh, I guess you could say retired pathologist, right, and, and dentist, um, Gregory Prince. And he's adapting that title, Faith and Doubt as Partners in Mormon History. By the way, if you're a student, a college student, you can get a cash award by going to the lecture this evening and uh, submitting an essay. You can uh, find information on this at library.usu.edu slash special slash 2013. Or just to Google up the Leonard Arrington Mormon History Lecture. Uh, pretty generous. First place, $1,000 for this. Uh, you just have to, to go to the lecture and uh, write a 2,500-word essay. Submit that so you can find more information online about that. So uh, faith and doubt, two sides of the same coin, Dr. Prince, you're saying. The interplay between the two is essential to a complete religious life. We've been talking about Leonard Arrington. Uh, he, he felt that this was important. Juanita Brooks, some others. Um, let's bring this forward. Uh, there was... Uh, very important piece in the New York Times. I somehow have completely missed this, but you were telling me about this. Um, a an authority in the LDS Church went public with some doubts. I guess that that, that he was being confronted with. Uh, this is Hans Matson. Yes, Hans is a terrific fellow. He is a third generation Mormon. The Matson family is a foundational Mormon family in Sweden. The church is not real large there, uh, and. This is really a rock-solid family all the way through. Hans was an Area 70 from 2000 to 2005. In the course of carrying out his church duties, he would frequently speak with bishops, with stake presidents throughout Europe, and increasingly with the rise of the influence of the Internet. These men would come to him and say, Hans, we are getting some tough questions from our members, and we don't know how to answer them. So you are the authority. You answer them. Well, he started to look into them and found out that he'd never even heard some of these questions, much less knew the answers. And by going to the Internet, which is what people do now, your odds of getting on a site that is both sympathetic and authoritative 
are almost nil. There are so many non-sympathetic sites out there that it's almost guaranteed that's where you're going to land first. And we have a transformation from the Leonard Arrington model of an active doubter who dug deeply into the data and then saw that he had to challenge the paradigms. Now we have passive doubting where people really weren't looking to pick a fight. But when they go onto the Internet, here is information that is thrust upon them and suddenly they are filled with doubts. Well, this happened to Hans, and he almost resigned his church membership as a result. He was basically on the ledge, ready to jump. Fortunately, uh, in part through the auspices of one of the former missionaries from uh, in Sweden who lives in New York, we were able to get Hans to a better place. But as he continued to wrestle with these questions and then continued to think about larger implications, he decided that he wanted to talk to a reporter about this. So uh, a few months ago, he spent five hours with Lori Goodstein of the New York Times, and the result was this front-page Sunday morning article in the New York Times about probably the highest-ranking Mormon official who has gone public with these doubts. What do you think the what do you think this means? Does it does it show a shift in attitudes among Mormons? I think what it shows is the enormous and irreversible power of the internet. It's a permanent game changer. So we can no longer live in an insular world. Uh, the church used to control the message because it controlled the data, and that was fine. Uh, uh, the church archives had just mountains of information that really was not available anywhere else. Now, much of the information, even that's in the church archives, is disseminated through the internet. So there are very few secrets anymore, and it's very difficult, even if you wanted to, to remain naive about some of these questions that trouble people. In preparation for dealing with Hans uh, a couple of years ago, because he flew over and a couple of us met with him in New York to get him to safer ground, uh, some of the people involved in this did an internet survey and just put out a request for people who either had left the church or felt marginalized and at risk of leaving to answer questions, to self-identify, and, and talk about what were the issues that either troubled them or in some cases tipped them over. And then uh, all of these data were assembled and analyzed about 3,000 people eventually responded to this survey. So it gives a pretty good snapshot of what the questions are out there that are really troubling people. We know where the homework needs to be done. Hmm. What, what are the issues? <coughs> Excuse me. The number one in aggregate would be the Book of Mormon. <clears throat> number two was Book of Abraham, and number three is polygamy. Hmm. Maybe you could have a little capsule of each of those. Well, uh, people are looking at the Book of Mormon from a variety of angles now, many of which are questioning some of the traditional story of its origins. And that really comes down to, is this a literal translation of an ancient record? That's one pole of the extreme. The other pole is that it's a 19th century document produced by Joseph Smith. And then there are a lot of alternatives in between those two extremes. Well, science is increasingly informing some of these questions. For instance, DNA analysis now allows us to trace 
origins of people in various geographical areas. Where did they come from hundreds or thousands of years ago? And some of those findings are challenging to the surface assumptions about where the people from the Book of Mormon came from and when. Uh, Archaeological evidence continues to be somewhat problematic when you compare the findings of archaeology with the stated claims within the Book of Mormon. Uh, Linguistics is another issue. How do you account for all of the indigenous languages and their various dialects arising in a fairly short period of time if you were to accept the assumption that as recently as 400 A.D., these people still knew enough about Hebrew that they could have read the records that they brought with them. Hmm. This idea of faith and doubt being two sides of the same coin. Uh, I would imagine not just the Mormon church, but many religions, um, it would be, at least the pressure would be, or the inner pressure, you would feel that you you have to lean much more toward faith. What what should a believer do with doubt? Well, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, I think, was very clear about it when he said, prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Well, if you're going to prove it, it means you have to set up the test, which means that you're going to doubt it at some point along the road. And then you're going to prove whether that doubt is valid or not. So this is not a new issue. It certainly reaches back into the earliest years of Christianity, and I think probably a lot earlier than that in other traditions. I get back to what Helen Whitney said, that Mormons and other traditions will do best if they own their religion rather than just accepting it at face value. Mm. What should then Mormons do to own their religion? Well, I think they have to choose which topics they want to engage. The Internet sometimes takes that choice out of their hands, and when that happens, we have a crisis, and sometimes we lose people because they're not able to cope with that. Uh, There are some Latter-day Saints who choose not to engage at all, who just want to move forward with the received story, and that's adequate to get them through their lives, that's terrific. I wouldn't want to upset that apple cart. But there are others who are wired differently. And when I speak about being wired differently, I'll go back to Paul and his discourse about spiritual gifts, where he talks about some people are able to believe just by hearing the words of others. They'll take it on somebody else's word. There are other people who can't do that. Hmm. We still have both of those types of people. Hmm. And so if you're type two there, then you're not satisfied just taking somebody else's word. And the alternative is you're going to have to wrestle with it and prove it for yourself. Mm. I think it was Will Durant who said that no faith is worthwhile that hasn't served an apprenticeship of doubt. Mm. What about speaking of the the entire, you know, the the official church? Um, Where do you think the official church is on on this question, intellect and faith, doubt and faith? Well, I think the official church realizes that the faith crisis, particularly as it was portrayed in the New York Times, is a real and probably a permanent phenomenon. And it's permanent because the internet is not going to go away. You cannot protect people from information if they're on the internet at all. The response to it is going to be a very challenging thing because you have various groups, not just the two groups of which I spoke, of people who own their religion in different ways. The institutional church has the challenge of trying to facilitate that ownership within each of those groups, and yet 
each of the groups is going to approach it differently. So how do you meet them on their own turf without disturbing the next guy over or without disappointing the next guy over in the other direction? Hmm. It's a very difficult challenge, and I don't have a simple answer for it. For those, you've called them type two personalities, see that they're wired to investigate. Yes. Um, I'm sure you've talked with or, or seen comments from some who, who would say, uh, you know, you follow your investigation where it leads. And if, if it leads to leaving a church, uh, then so be it. You, it seems like you're concerned with, with keeping those people in, in church. I think those people should at least have as much guidance as the institution and their fellow church members can give them to deal with these questions. Hans was in a very difficult situation because he was going it alone. Once a few of us sat down with him for a few hours, he was fine. So many people who otherwise, to use an analogy, might blow up walking across a minefield can get across that minefield just fine if they have a guide. And it doesn't take very long to do it. So I don't think that we can just say whatever happens, happens. Uh, We can steer the outcome on a lot of these things. And I think that for individual church members and for the institution, that's what we grapple with. How can you set the system up so that each of these groups is enabled to wrestle with the questions at the level that they want to wrestle with them? Hmm. It won't be one size fits all. Right. We're talking with Gregory Prince on the program today. Uh, He is a retired pathologist and dentist, and he uh, took up at one point uh, Mormon history. He's written a a couple of books, uh, one of those, a history of a a biography of David O. McKay, who was a president of the LDS Church. Uh, He is adapting Leonard Arrington's own title when he gave the first Leonard J. Arrington annual Mormon history lecture. That was Faith and Intellect as Partners in Mormon History. And tonight at 7 o'clock in the Logan LDS Tabernacle, the 19th annual lecture will be given by Dr. Prince. Uh, His title is Faith and Doubt as Partners in Mormon History. And uh, he says that uh, the interplay between faith and doubt is essential to a complete religious life and that scholars are uniquely qualified to leverage the inherent value of doubt. And he focuses on paradigm shifts in Mormon culture and how people's faith, coupled with doubt, challenge conventional wisdom. We'll get to some more examples of that following a break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible by our members and USU Special Collections and Archives, Merrill Kazir Library, presenting the 19th Annual Arrington Mormon History Lecture, Thursday, September 19th at 7 at the Logan Tabernacle. Area college students who attend can win up to $1,000 with a written essay related to the lecture. Essay information is at the lecture or at 797-2663. And by USU Human Resources. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. How do you manage work-life balance? For many of us, life seems to have two speeds, fast and faster. The pressures at work are followed by the needs and demands at home. A recent study found that more than half of American workers felt overwhelmed by their workload at some point. Even so, one-third of those surveyed had no plans to make the vacation days they had available. No matter how energetic you may be, stretching yourself to the limit every day puts your health and happiness at risk. Frequent stress takes a mental and physical toll on your body. 
If you are often stressed out, you may feel irritated, worried, or depressed, and may have frequent headaches, backaches, or an upset stomach. A wise goal is simply to do what you reasonably can. This will help you strive for a balance between your work and home activities. If you can also manage to take time for yourself every day, you'll be on the road to a greater well-being. This is Dana Barrett for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Prince, retired dentist, pathologist, and uh, Mormon historian. Uh, he wrote uh, a biography of uh, David O. McKay, who was a president of the LDS Church. And uh, his lecture, uh, the uh, annual Arrington Mormon History Lecture, this evening at 7 o'clock in the Logan LDS Tabernacle, is called Faith and Doubt as Partners in Mormon History. He's taking that as a slight adaptation from Arrington's original lecture. By the way, Leonard Arrington uh, bequeathed uh, a lot of his records to uh, the USU Library and... Uh, part of that uh, bequest to set up this lecture. So so we we can thank Leonard Arrington for this annual lecture. The 19th annual lecture is coming up uh, this evening, 7 o'clock, Dr. Prince. Uh, And uh, Dr. Prince says that uh, Arrington's seminal work, Great Basin King, was an example of uh, someone who's willing to doubt the commonly accepted story of Mormon colonization uh, of the Great Basin. He followed data toward a new paradigm and that other paradigms uh, shifts have occurred, people whose uh, faith was coupled with doubt sufficiently robust to challenge conventional wisdom. We'll get into some more of those examples. I want to talk now about, uh, now about uh, looking at another sacred text, the Bible, mm-hmm. and uh, a crisis in some people's minds at the beginning of the 20th century. Yes, uh, the phenomenon really had its origins in the German Protestant world in the late 19th century. It was the first time that scholars had looked critically, scientifically, at the Bible. Uh, It stayed in Europe for a while, but by the first decade of the 20th century, it had moved to the United States. And some people called it higher criticism of the Bible. That was a term that was frequently used in Mormon circles. And it was viewed as a tremendous threat because the feeling was if we let scholars who are not clerics loose on the Bible, then we have lost the game. All will be gone. Uh, it, it reached the shores of BYU. Four of their prominent professors were fired because it was felt they were too sympathetic with higher criticism. And yet, as we look at what has happened to biblical studies since then, and as a result of that, we are in a far, far stronger position relative to what the Bible is, how we got it, and what it continues to do in people's lives than we were prior to the advent of higher criticism. I see strong parallels between then and now. There are some people who will be threatened by the power of the Internet to expose all of the inner workings of Mormonism or any other institution. Uh, We are in a data age, and the data will be there. But I think we'll do just fine because ultimately we're dealing with strong, substantial institutions that have nothing to lose by understanding themselves at a deeper level. And that's what's going to happen if we take this seriously and if we allow people not only to express their doubts publicly, but to wrestle with them. Looking at Mormonism today in the the broad stroke, um, you talked about this a little bit in your segment on the the film The Mormons, uh, or at least Helen Whitney, I think, asked you about this. A lot of religions, or most religions, you might say, uh, have a literal phase, and they move more to metaphor. Mm-hmm. 
And I wonder where you think Mormonism is on that uh, spectrum, and it, it, is it going to move and uh, more toward the, the latter? Well, there is some movement in that same direction. Uh, we are the new kid on the block still. We're a young religion. We are also both blessed and burdened at the same time with the enormous amount of records that we accumulated almost from day one. So that's a challenge because we're not in the position of Judaism that can say, you know, we really don't have the records that Moses wrote. So we'll just have to make some assumptions. We got the records there and we have to deal with those data points. But uh, one just little straw in the wind, I think, is that over a period of 20 years, Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, did two surveys of its readership. The first was about 30 years ago. The second was about 10 years ago. Same questions. There were two significant differences in the responses to the two surveys. Number one, which is very troubling to those of us who are on the Dialogue board, is that the average age of the reader was 20 years older 20 years later than it had been 20 years earlier. That's not a good sign. We have to engage younger readers. The other was that the percentage of the readers who had moved from a literal Book of Mormon to a metaphorical Book of Mormon had increased enormously. Now, that's a very thin slice of the overall demographic pie of Mormonism, but I think it is a an interesting straw in the wind to suggest that people, once they do start to own their religion, once they start to understand what the basis of religion is, they see the power of metaphor and it doesn't threaten them anymore, and they can make that transition where they feel comfortable doing so from a historical to a metaphorical religion, and they find in the process that not only have they not lost something, they've gained something. I want to talk a little bit more about this uh, shift in paradigm that uh, that uh, faith coupled with doubt, you say, can lead in some cases to a shift in paradigms. And I'm wondering, uh, maybe give me another example or two that well, uh, you've seen. Let me just backtrack and say that this is what science is. This is scientific methodology, that you have enough faith that you are going on the right track in science, but you're designing the experiment to push that envelope that you're never completely satisfied with what the answers are now, so you're always trying to push further. Uh, I think that another area that we're seeing in contemporary Mormonism where science is informing and where doubt is shifting the paradigm is LGBT issues. That uh, our policies over the decades have been built on a foundation that was explicitly stated to be that this is a choice and that if you can choose to have this identity, then you can choose not to. And the entire structure of policy was built on that foundation. Well, less than a year ago, the church launched a website called mormonsandgays.org wherein they say for the first time, this is not a choice. In other words, this is biological. Well, that's a complete overturn of a paradigm, and we don't know yet what all the ramifications of that will be or how quickly it will happen, but we have seen an enormous change in this church since the mid-1970s when we really were very harsh towards gays in the church, uh, 
to where we are now where we welcome openly gay missionaries to serve full-time proselytizing missions. Now, they have to adhere to the same standards of conduct that uh, straight missionaries do, but nonetheless, for those of us who struggled with this during the 70s and the 80s, this is an enormous change. Hmm. Where do you think that issue is going to end up? don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, Once biology moves into the question, then I think you have to look at all of the policies. Some of them the church may decide that it wants to remain with. Others it may say, you know, this policy in the light of new biological information may need to be reexamined. What order they will do that that in and where they will change and how quickly, who knows? Not my call. But uh, this is going to be one that I will welcome watching. I I have skin in the game. I have a sister who is gay, and I'm on the National Board of Directors of Affirmation, which is the oldest and most prominent uh, LDS gay support group. So I I look at this with great interest as we move forward. Hmm. Have you seen a shift in in attitudes at the congregation level? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Uh, and I think it tracks with the shift nationally. Hmm. That movement in the United States on this issue has been almost blindingly fast when you compare it to movement on other social issues in previous decades. Some of it you can account for because it is a generational issue. If you talk to teenagers and 20-somethings today, they'll just look at you and say, why are you even bringing this up? Why should this be an issue? Where did you come from? Mm. But that's not enough to account for the rapidity of the change in society in general. So it's trickling up that the older demographics are realizing that they have to re-examine their own values and their own explanations for why the world is this way. And they're doing it at a clip that I think is amazing everybody. Hmm. You talk about these paradigm changes, um, and you have talked about faith and doubt, and uh, linking that with this idea, the Mormon idea of continuing revelation. Yes. We usually think of revelation um, as uh, coming from top down, right? And uh, uh, d- d- does this have an effect bottom up as well? Oh, I think that uh, the trickle up revelation in this church is more important than trickle down, particularly if you look back a few decades, because most of the organizations within the church, uh, many of the programs within the church started as grassroots initiatives that became successful on a local level and then were appropriated by the central church and disseminated worldwide. That has been less common since the advent of modern correlation in the 60s, but it still goes on. It's not to deny the trickle down. And we spoke earlier about the 1978 revelation. That came about primarily because two church presidents, not just one, doubted. The first one, nobody really appreciated, and that was David O. McKay. And the reason they didn't appreciate that is that he held this one so tight that he didn't even discuss it with his own counselors. But in doing the biography and in interviewing 200 people, I came across some people who brought me stories that I didn't know existed about multiple times when President McKay took the question to the source. Now, that's doubt. That's saying, I'm not satisfied with the status quo, so you're talking to the chief and saying, is it time to change this? McKay did not get an answer. 
but Spencer Kimball did. And in both cases, you had church presidents who were willing to doubt a policy that most people in the church didn't consider a policy. They considered it immutable doctrine. So we, we see both. We see the trickle down and we see the trickle up. And I think it's a healthy thing for the organization to have both. Finally, we just have a couple minutes left. I wonder where you see the institution, the, the LDS, the Mormon Church, uh, in terms of the pressures that are on it and uh, where you think it might move. Give me a little bit more guidance on um, this. <clears throat> well, the, uh, with respect to in, in this interview with Helen Whitney for the, the, mm-hmm. the movie The Mormons, uh, you talked about sort of three, uh, three eras of, of the church, you know, before Utah, Utah, and then now moving into the, the modern era, which was accelerated by the, in the presidency of, of David O. McKay. Yeah. Um, and there are sort of some, some pressures on, on the church as it, as it sort of moves into the, to the modern era. Yeah, it, it's interesting how you can go back and look at some things that were prophetic. And one of them was a doctoral dissertation from the 20s by Ephraim Erickson. Uh, It had a a long, cumbersome title, but what he said in this dissertation was Mormonism has had two major challenges, and it has a third one confronting it. The first one was us against them, the pre-Exodus period, where Mormons were driven from Ohio and from Illinois and from Missouri and eventually came to the Great Basin. He said the second one is Mormonism against nature, colonizing the Great Basin. He says the third is confronting ourselves. He said, it's looking inwards and starting to wrestle with these questions that Erickson could already see were there and that eventually were going to confront the entire church. So in addition to other challenges that it confronts, like worldwide growth and how do you adapt what started out as a great basin church to the cultures of countries all over the world, Uh, We have these internal questions of how are we going to deal with the historical and the doctrinal questions that people are going to be confronted with, and how do we allow the members to to wrestle with them successfully? Uh, Those are enormous challenges for the church. I I wish them well, and I don't envy the position that they're in, because these are huge challenges. Well, we'll all be curious to to see what happens. And uh, Dr. Gregory Prince will be talking about some of these issues this evening at 7 o'clock. It's the 19th annual Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. Uh, 7 o'clock, Logan LDS Tabernacle, free and open to the public. The title is uh, Faith and Doubt as Partners in Mormon History. Gregory Prince is author of several books, including a biography of uh, David O. McKay, who was a president of the LDS Church. And uh, there'll be a forthcoming biography of Leonard Arrington himself. I hope within about two years. All right. We'll we'll look for that. Uh, That's 7 o'clock tonight in Logan. By the way, a note from yesterday, Ivan Doig's presentation via Skype is 7 o'clock tonight in Salt Lake City, and that's at the King's English Bookshop. We told you the wrong place yesterday on the program. Uh, Dr. Prince, thanks so much. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, of course, Science Questions with uh, Sherry Quinn, and we'll have a program on Grandmother Power on Monday on the program. Hope you'll join me for that. For producer uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.
Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Hi, my name is Nicole Molly. I am 38 years old and uh, here in St. George, Utah. I'm here with my fiancé, Robert Verhelst. And I'm Robert Verhelst, otherwise known as Fireman Rob. I am 35 years old and in St. George, getting ready for Half Ironman St. George. So, Rob, tell everybody first why we're here today. Today we're uh, coming, uh, it's the start of the 2013 Mission of Inspiration. I do full Ironman and Half Ironman with the run portion and full firefighter gear, weighing 50 pounds for the whole run portion. Let's go back to how this all started. What made you do the very first race? And what gave you the idea to do it in gear? Back in 2011, Ironman Wisconsin landed on the 10th anniversary of September 11th. And I had done eight days of search and recovery um, at September 11th. I got there two days after the trade towers had been hit. 9-11 is one of those uh, topics and far removed from it now. But at the same point, it's in the forefront of everything that I do. It took a lot of years to be able to overcome what I had seen there and what I had done. I think the biggest thing that I that I took away from that was to live each day. You don't know what's going to happen at the end of the day. Being a part of that, in essence, recovery effort was amazing because there was no... It didn't matter who you were. When you were on that site, you were an American. You were there for the purpose of rebuilding what had been taken from us. And to me, that is the greatest gift that I have received from that is is how amazing people can be when they need to help their fellow man. It translates into everything that I do here. I worked eight days of search and recovery on the pile. I mean, a lot of those days were 20-hour days, but you don't realize they're 20 hours until after the fact. Um, you just continue to go and go and go because that's what those other people did. They didn't get a chance to see the next sunrise. They didn't get a chance to have another birthday. You do. Take advantage of that. Make sure that every single day is important when you wake up to when you go to bed. 9-11 really reshaped my life and reshaped how I approach things. And as much negative that came from it, uh, the positives that came from it for helping people to realize how amazing we can be and what we can develop, you have to take that. And subsequently, I wanted to make that an important moment in my life. So I came up with the idea of honoring those who had fallen, making that point that our country came together as a whole on that day. And so I decided to do it in gear. Um, What made you decide to make a whole year of it? The response that I received from that individual event was amazing. I wanted to carry that on. When you get this inspiration and you start to motivate others to be better. You want to keep that going. And I, I thought in 2012, you know what, I'm going to try to do this again. Every single event, it's amazing to see the individuals. I get to talk to the greatest people because everybody that does these races has a story. And I get to hear these stories. What are some of your favorite stories? Was there was an elderly couple that was near the finish line, and they were sitting out in their lawn chairs. And the gentlemen out there, every time I went by, they were clapping and cheering. When I came back around to go to the finish line, I went over onto the lawn, shook their hands, gave his wife a hug, and he said, I told my wife that we wouldn't leave our seats until you got to the finish line. And he was a veteran firefighter of 35 years who had retired. 
it's that kind of emotional connection that I, I've made throughout this journey with just regular people, with kids, with endurance athletes, with so many different individuals, and I, it's a great feeling to have. What does St. George mean to you? Why did you decide to come back again after the experience last year? It was that moment that I actually figured out what I was doing. You should never really have a true finish line because you always want to keep going. I finished at 1 a.m. with the fire department, fire truck leading the way, the police department behind us. Just an amazing, an amazing experience in, in the life to have that and to be able to touch those people in that kind of way. People are so defined on making grand schemes. To make a difference in this world, they feel like they have to make a grand gesture. No, to make a difference in this world, you just have to inspire one person. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you.